Critical issues that disturb the church today are understandable only in their historical context and development. As one has said, not to know what has happened in the past is always to remain a child. Although some writing of history is cold and boring, the history of the Christian church is, to use Daubigny's phrase, pregnant with celestial fire. He's speaking of the hand of God at work in human affairs. God ruling, God overruling, God hiding his power, God openly intervening in the affairs of individuals and nations. History is the record of the government of the king of kings. So that the better we know history, the better we know God. To paraphrase Isaiah 25, 1, his is the display, history, spell that out, history is the display of God's awesome power in the carrying out of his eternal plans in perfect faithfulness to his word. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was the greatest series of, of events since the first century. The founding of the church in the first century and the Reformation in the 16th century are one and the same historical reality. The first is the parent of the second. The Protestant Reformation was a spirit-produced revival and reformation of the church and culture by the Word of God, the greatest since the days of the Apostles. The Reformation was the rediscovery of grace, to use the title of William C. Robinson's book. It was a rediscovery of God as he had revealed himself in Christ and the Bible. Robinson said, for the Reformers, God is at the center of life. God who acts, God who does, God who thinks, God who speaks, God who saves, God who reigns and rules here and now. When every true Christian, whether living or dead, has a share given to him to him by God in all the benefits of Christ and the church, even without letters of pardon. Then God advances for him into the foreground, and once more the treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the grace and glory of God. We've already seen how the reformers use sound bites. Roman numeral three. God used many events and people to prepare the way for the Protestant Reformation. John Wycliffe, William Tyndall, their translations of the Bible. But in a real sense, after centuries of preparation, the Reformation began on October the 31st, 1517. On that day, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, spelling out his disagreements with the doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church and calling for a public debate on these, these issues. Thomas Carlyle said of Martin Luther, I call Luther a truly great man. He is great in intellect, great in courage, great in affection and integrity, one of the most lovable and gracious men. He is great, not as a hewn obelisk is great, but as an alpine mountain is great. So simple, honest, spontaneous, not setting himself up to be great, but there for quite another purpose than the purpose of being great. What were all the popes, emperors, and potentates in comparison? His light was to flame as a beacon over long centuries and epochs of the world, and its history was waiting for this man. 
Professor Roland Bainton of Yale wrote a biography of Luther called Here I Stand and said in it, Luther is not an individual. He is a phenomenon. Martin Luther was a German Augustinian monk born in November, November 10th, 1483, and was 26 years older than Calvin. He became a monk because of his anxiety about his spiritual condition and his standing with God. But his years as a monk only intensified that anxiety. He could never find assurance of the forgiveness of sins in all the rites, practices, sacraments, and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. He knew he could never be sure if he had done enough good works ordered by the church in order to merit salvation. He could never be certain that he had confessed all his sins. And so he lived under a heavy weight of guilt and of a strong fear of God's wrath on him because of his sins. Then he started reading the Bible instead of the medieval scholastics. While he was working on his sermons on the Psalms in the summer of 1513, God captured Luther's heart. Romans 1, 16 and 17 penetrated his heart and changed everything. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. By grace he realized that this righteousness, which is the basis of one standing in the favor of God, is not something man produces, but something that God gives through faith in Christ alone. Luther himself said, When I realized this, I felt myself absolutely born again. The gates of paradise had been flung open and I entered. There and then the whole of scripture took on another look to me. From that point on, says Atkinson, Luther's sense that the church had grown farther and farther away from the gospel and had lost it in favor of a powerful secular institution and a humanized philosophy cum theology. He made nothing new, yet he made everything new. He simply restored the gospel. He innovated nothing, but renovated everything. It can also be said that the Reformation began between the years 1515 and 1516 with Luther's lectures on the Epistle to the Romans and his publishing of those lectures. Unknown for 400 years, that manuscript was not found until 1908 when it was published. In these lectures, Atkinson says, Luther at once argues the doctrine of justification by faith as the door to the gospel showing the profound error of contemporary scholasticism in seeking its own righteousness and in not seeing that the gospel destroys any and all righteousness of our own and creates a wholly other righteousness, a righteousness not of our own making, but of God's making. It is not because a man is righteous that he is therefore imputed to be righteous by God. But because he is reputed to be righteous by God, he is therefore righteous. Apart from Christ, no one is righteous, and no one keeps the law. As long as I recognize that I cannot be righteous before God, said Luther, I then begin to ask for righteousness from him. The only thing that resists this idea of justification is the pride of the human heart, proud through unbelief. These same themes are emphasized and expounded in his sermons on Galatians, which he preached between October 
1516 and March 1517, and on Hebrews, which he preached between March 1517 and March 1518. What set Luther's preaching apart from that of his contemporaries was his central emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ as the only basis of our, of our right standing with God. This was the dynamic of all his preaching and writing. It did not take Rome long to declare Luther a heretic and outlaw. His life was often threatened by strangling, drowning, or the like. But the more people threatened, the more he would place his complete trust in Christ. He soon came under the protection of powerful German princes. Luther wrote many books and pamphlets, but four of his most important and influential books called his Reformation Writings are Open Letter to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation Concerning the Reform of the Christian Estate, The Prelude on the Babylonish Captivity of the Church, The Freedom of a Christian Man, and The Bondage of the Will. In the first part of his book, An Open Letter to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation Concerning the Reform of the Christian Estate, Luther does three things. First, he sets forth his key doctrine that was a blast against Romanism of the spiritual priesthood of all believers. His second blast was the declaration that since we have the Holy Scripture, we do not need a pope. Third, he refutes the idea that only the pope has the authority to call a church council. In the second part of the book, Luther castigates the worldly pomp of the pope and cardinals and their greed. He gives a long list of things in the church that need reformed, including the abolition of papal power over the state, the creation of a German church with its own court of final appeal, together with a religious and moral reform of the whole of Christendom. In his book, The Prelude on the Babylonish Captivity of the Church, Luther exposes the three main errors of Roman Catholicism concerning the Lord's Supper, the exclusion of the laity from the cup, the doctrine of transubstantiation, and the sacrifice of the Mass. He shows that transubstantiation is a product of medieval scholasticism. He also attacked the number of sacraments in Roman Catholicism. In his book, The Freedom of a Christian Man, Luther summarizes the Christian life. His leading idea is, in his own words, the Christian man is the Lord of all and subject to none by virtue of faith. The Christian man is the servant of all and subject to everyone by virtue of love. A Christian man's life is made up of faith and love, faith in relation to God, love in relation to his fellow man. Man is made free by his justification by faith, but that faith is exercised in love to one's fellows and in good works. A man must first have this relation to God, that is, be righteous before he can do the righteous things God requires of him. Good works proceed from a good man. Good works do not make man into a believing man or a justified man. Faith unites the soul to Christ in perfect union. Therefore, whatever is Christ's is the soul's also. This is more than communion. It's victory, redemption, and freedom. With the publication of this book, Luther had the ear of Germany. When Luther threw into the fire the papal bull condemning him, on December 10th, 1520, Atkinson says a thrill went through Europe when it learned that a man with no more weight behind him than his faith in God had burned a papal bull. It was the fiery signal of emancipation. 
If the Reformation can be dated precisely, that date must be December the 10th, 1520. If eras can be dated, our modern era began at 9 o'clock that morning. One individual stood against the most powerful institution of his day. Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, is one of the best, if not the best, explanation of the relationship between predestination and human responsibility or free will ever written. It may be Luther's most important book. Luther himself considered it his most important book because it spoke of issues that were at the heart of the church. Warfield called it the manifesto of the Protestant Reformation. It was written in 1525 to answer Erasmus's diatribe against him entitled Diatribe Concerning Free Will. R.C. Sproul says that both Luther and Erasmus affirmed the necessity of grace, but, but at issue in the debate over justification, sola fide was the sola in sola gratia. It is the question of monergism, God working alone, versus synergism, God working with man, in the initiation of human redemption. Is the deciding factor in salvation something man does or something God does? This book, unlike his modern namesakes, reflects Luther's thorough Augustinianism and Calvinism in his doctrines of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. In responding to Erasmus, Luther wrote, A man without the Spirit of God does not do evil against his will, under pressure, as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief, being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. The will cannot change itself nor give itself another bend. On the other hand, when God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. Once more it desires and acts not of compulsion, but of its own desire and spontaneous inclination. Besides these books and several others, Luther translated the Bible into German as Die Heilige Schrift and wrote several hymns we still sing today, including A Mighty Fortress is Our God. At Worms, Germany, Tuesday, April the 17th, 1521, at 4 o'clock p.m., Luther stood boldly in resistance to both the emperor and the pope in defense of the gospel of justification by grace alone and through faith in Christ alone and in defense of the final and infallible authority of the Bible alone. One of the world's greatest moments was in that place on that day when Luther said in defense of the truth, Here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anders, Gott helf mir, Amen. Luther lived a long, indefatigable, useful, and controversial life to the last. On November 17th, he completed his sermons on Genesis, at the conclusion of which he said to his students, This is the beloved Genesis. God grant that after me it may be better done. I can do no more. I am weak. Pray God that he may grant me a good and happy end. Finally, at age 63, on November 18th, 1546, his his health failed completely, and he died quietly in the village of Eisleben, where he was born. He died with these words on his lips. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And the Protestant Reformation lost its Elijah. Although Luther is never mentioned by name in Calvin's Institutes. By the way, let me tell you something about the letters between Calvin and Luther. There was only one letter. Calvin had a great regard for Luther. Luther was the old man. Calvin was the young man. Luther, uh, Calvin sent Luther a letter. It's the only letter we know of. And he gave it to Luther's young associate, Melanchthon. And he said, please this, give this to Dr. Luther. And the letter was full of praise to Luther about his work. Except for one little oblique criticism in the last paragraph of his view of the Lord's Supper. He gave it to Melanchthon to deliver to Luther. And Melanchthon said he would do it. But the letter was never delivered. Because Melanchthon said to Calvin, if I give this letter to Dr. Luther, it will enrage him to see this one criticism of him by you. Although Luther is never mentioned by name in Calvin's Institutes, his influence on Calvin is seen in Calvin's formulation of doctrines. Calvin learned much from Luther, but he wanted to go farther along the road Luther had taken. He wanted to expand and correct his doctrines and express them more consistently and carefully. Luther recognized him as his student. In his book on the eternal predestination of God, Calvin placed himself completely and squarely on the side of Luther. He he wrote concerning Luther, We regard him as an excellent apostle of Christ, through whose work and service to the greatest extent in these days, was restored the purity of the gospel. All the way back to the famous lecture Calvin wrote for Nicholas Kopp in 1533, we encounter the main emphases of Luther, justification by faith alone, and the gospel is a message of salvation by Christ who was sent by God the Father. In fact, in the first edition of Institutes in 1536, Calvin derived the order of doctrines discussed from Luther's little catechism. They agreed on the divine authority of the Bible, justification alone, based on Christ's imputed righteousness alone, regeneration, predestination, the bondage of the will, on all the solas, and on most of the great truths of the Reformation, although sometimes they differed on the details and on emphasis. Both Luther and Calvin broke with medieval scholasticism, synergistic soteriology, and synergistic epistemology, Although Calvin did it with more penetration and greater consistency. Synergism is the idea that man and God work together for salvation. Medieval scholasticism was the Roman Catholic Church's attempt to blend Christianity with Greek philosophy. Synergistic soteriology is a semi-Pelagian recreation of salvation in terms of the merits of man and the grace of God. Synergistic epistemology is an attempt to create a worldview based on a synthesis between Christianity and pagan Greek philosophy concerning how we know what we know, and Calvin and Luther stood together against those. But there were some important differences between Luther and Calvin. First of all, with reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Regarding the Lord's Supper, the Roman Catholic Church believed that Christ's words, this is my body, are to be taken literally. Therefore, defining their doctrine in terms of Aristotelianism, Rome teaches that in essence the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper 
are miraculously turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus during the Mass. One of the reasons for this view is the false notion that one must come into contact with the physical body of Jesus in order to receive his saving blessings. Martin Luther rejected transubstantiation, but accepted Rome's literal view of Christ's words and the belief that union with Christ is received only by contact with him physically. Luther's view of the Lord's Supper is called consubstantiation. That is, the bread and the wine are not changed into Christ's body and blood, but because you have to come in contact with Christ's uh, physical body to receive blessing, uh, spiritual blessings, Christ's literal body and literal blood is in, with, and under the visible elements, whatever that means. This required the Lutherans to create an unbiblical doctrine of the ubiquity of Christ's resurrected body. That is, the physical body of Christ can be in more than one place at one time, which is a basic denial of Christ's true humanity. One of the marks of our createdness is that a creature can be in only one place at one time. As God, Christ is omnipresent, but as man, he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Calvin rejected both transubstantiation and consubstantiation, believing that Christ's words are to be taken figuratively. Whereas Calvin believed that Christians enjoyed communion with the whole Christ in the Lord's Supper, he also believed that Christ's real presence was also spiritual, in that Christ was brought near believers in communion by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This real but spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper was the source of spiritual virtues to worthy receivers by faith. He also rejected the view of the ubiquity of Christ's resurrected physical body on the a basis of such verses as John 14, 12 and John 16, 7. Second difference between them was where you start in doing theology. According to historian Philip Chaff, the, Lutherans begin, the Lutheran begins his theology with the spiritual and subjective needs of sinful people and the personal experience of justification by faith alone and finds in this article of the standing and falling of the church comfort and peace of conscience and the strongest stimulus to a godly life. Lutheranism's ultimate question is, what must I do to be saved from sin? On the other hand, Calvin begins with God, his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, and his self-revelation. On that basis, he sought the reconstruction of church and culture. His ultimate question is, how can I glorify God? Lutheranism proceeds from man to God. Calvinism proceeds from God to man. The one puts the subjective principles of the Reformation first, and the other the objective principles, although both schools believe both. For example, whereas the Augsburg Confession, the first and most important of the Lutheran confessions, does not have a section on the doctrine of Scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with a lengthy chapter on the doctrine of Scripture. And then there were differences between them in terms of personality and of writing theology. After everything Luther, Zwingli, and the first generation of reformers had done, there was the need for someone with a comprehensive mind who would be able to rise above exaggeration and the distraction of contemporary theological debates to survey the whole range of biblical truth in all its aspects, emphases, 
and interrelationships and to present them as the systematic, harmonious whole they in fact are. This was the special work for which God gave us John Calvin. Luther was prone to exaggeration and absorbed in temporal doctrinal debates. Luther was a real Elijah. Calvin not only did what Luther and the other reformers did, he did what none of them did in his great work of digesting and systematizing the whole scheme of divine truth, of expressing all the orderliness, systematic and internal consistency of the different doctrines of the Word of God, unfolding them in all their mutual relations. William Cunningham has written, Calvin had received from God mental powers of the highest order, distinguished equally by comprehensiveness and penetration of intellect, by acuteness and soundness of judgment. His circumstances in early life were so regulated in providence that he was furnished with the best opportunities of improving his faculties and acquiring the learning and culture that might be necessary with a view to his future labors. And so writes Cunningham, by grasping with vigor and comprehensiveness the whole scheme of divine truth and all its departments, and combining them into one harmonious and well-digested system, Calvin has done what Luther did not and could not have done. And then they differed concerning the relationship of church and state. In Luther's thinking, there are two kingdoms, church and state. In both kingdoms, God is ruler, although in different ways. One kingdom, the church, is governed by divine revelation. The other, the state, is governed by human reason. With this theory, Luther severed the bond between church and state, although he did not see it. According to Calvin, neither kingdom of church and state can be understood, neither kingdom of church and state can be understood properly apart from the lordship and universal rule of Jesus Christ and the demands of God's law, especially the Decalogue. He believed that all Christians have a holy calling to do everything possible to advance God's kingdom in asserting its penetrating and transforming influence throughout the whole world. In Luther's two kingdoms theory, now spread far and wide, even in reform circles, is that the church is the realm of grace and the state the realm of nature. This retreat of the church into its four walls, not understanding that it has a prophetic responsibility to call to repentance and to renewed obedience to Christ and his law, paved the way in Germany for the rise and bloody tyranny of Adolf Hitler. The church did not see its calling to rise up in opposition to his tyranny. It generally was silent in cowering before him, although some courageous souls spoke out loudly against him and suffered for it, for example, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. In contrast, few sections of the church have stood as courageously and vigorously against tyranny as the Reformed churches throughout their history because they refused to limit Christ's lordship to the church but recognize that the civil magistrate, as well as all of culture, are under that lordship and must be called to submit to it to it, or be broken by the scepter of Christ's wrath. Andrew Sandlin has written, For the Reformed Church to embrace the Lutheran two-kingdom theory, and he's writing against some people, some Reformed people that have embraced this Lutheran view. For the Reformed Church to embrace the Lutheran two-kingdom theory, 
is to surrender a critical distinction of its faith and to compromise Jesus Christ's authority in all dimensions of life. To argue that society, including the state, is permissibly non-Christian is necessarily to argue that it is permissibly anti-Christian. The issue is not whether each member of society must be a Christian, and certainly not whether the state should force anyone to become a Christian, ideas and practices which Calvinists abhor. Rather, the issue is whether we will continue to advocate and work for Christian civilization, biblical Christianity as the unifying principle of all of life, individual, family, church, science, arts, media, education, technology, and even the state. J. Gresham Machen loyally carried forward this reformed tradition when he declared, the Christian cannot be satisfied so long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but also all of human thought.